I would um, appreciate your prayers this morning that my voice will hold up through this sermon. I feel just fine. It's just uh, apparently I had something earlier in the week that just attacked my voice. I went out and mowed the the yard on Monday afternoon, and when I came in, my voice was gone. So hopefully it will hold up this morning. Well, today is Oktoberfest Sunday, when we celebrate essentially the same thing Old Testament Israel celebrated in their fall Feast of Harvest, which was also called the Feast of Booths. We're celebrating God's goodness to us in bringing us to Christ and his salvation, God's goodness in blessing us as a church over the past year, and God's future goodness promised to us and indeed all the world in terms of the sure success of his kingdom in the world. So that's why today we have a special kingdom sermon. So with that in mind, let's read our sermon text, which is Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45, where we have Daniel speaking the words of God to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Our God and Father, Please open these remarkable words that you gave through a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar and explain them through your servant, Daniel. Grant that we may be faithful like Daniel was and that through our testimony, through our lives, through our worship, you would advance your kingdom in the world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Five to six hundred years before Christ came into the world, God provided a gripping and vivid tutorial 
on his kingdom. When it would come, why it would come, what would be its nature and effect upon the world. And that tutorial is known to us as the book of Daniel, particularly the events of the first seven chapters. Now, we cannot cover the first seven chapters this morning in all their detail, but I at least want to look at some of the essential lessons God taught Nebuchadnezzar and that he teaches us about his kingdom. The first essential lesson is this. The entrance of God's kingdom into the world and its success in the world often take place in distressing times. The entrance of God's kingdom into the world and its success in the world often takes place counterintuitively in distressing times. Chapter 1 of Daniel opens with Daniel and three of his friends as young men probably still in their mid to late teens, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which was the dominant empire of the Mediterranean world in that day. Daniel and his three friends will spend the rest of their lives as civil servants under multiple kings of the Babylonian empire and then under the Medo-Persian empire. Their lives are going to be a constant roller coaster ride due to fickle kings, envious, conniving, pagan peers, death threats, sometimes seemingly certain death, moments of great exaltation and honor, and then rinse and repeat, all as they seek to walk faithfully to the one true God and to stand against paganism and idolatry. Their lives in the context of pagan is a microcosmic example of how God's people still today are to serve him, not only for the 600 years from Daniel to the entrance of God's kingdom proper into the world, but also afterwards, showing us today how to serve God faithfully in often chaotic and distressing times while seeking the advancement of God's kingdom in all the world. Excuse me. That's the first essential lesson God teaches us. His entrance of his kingdom and his success in the world takes place often in distressing times. The second essential lesson that God teaches us is that his kingdom concerns not only God's people, but all the world, all nations, and all rulers. Chapter 2 of Daniel involves God giving a special kingdom announcement and blessing in the form of a dream. But God doesn't give this dream to Daniel or his friends. God doesn't give this dream to any of his people, any of the Israelites. He gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan ruler of the empire of Babylon. Indeed, Chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel are not written in Hebrew at all. They're not written in the language of God's Old Testament people. It's written in Aramaic, the language of the Babylonian Empire. So you see from the beginning, this message of the kingdom is for all the pagan nations and all the pagan rulers. And we see this theme repeated throughout the Old Testament. 
Psalm 2, for example, which is a messianic psalm, a kingdom psalm, which is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New. Listen to the application of the psalm in verse 10. Now, therefore, be wise, who? O kings. Be instructed, who? O judges of the earth. What should they do? Serve the Lord. Serve the one true and living God with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pay him homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We're not even talking about final judgment yet. We're talking about perishing in this life because they have made the Son angry. When his wrath is kindled but a little But on the other hand, listen to the final words. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That is the essential kingdom message. And it's going to be emphasized yet again by the fact that in Daniel chapter 4, part of that chapter is going to be authored by Nebuchadnezzar himself as he gives his own testimony to the true and living God where it is described how God humbled him. God took away his sanity for seven years to humble him, to bring him to faith and submission. And then Nebuchadnezzar confesses that the one true God is the only true God who rules over all things. And he is the one to whom Nebuchadnezzar and all rulers should declare allegiance. So that's the second essential lesson. God's kingdom concerns not just his people, all the world, all nations, all rulers. The third essential lesson is that the kingdoms of fallen man are all basically the same. The kingdoms of fallen man are all basically the same. That's the point God is making in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by having the four ancient Mediterranean empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, they constitute a single man, a single statue. Now, some are more glorious, like gold is more glorious. Some are stronger. Iron is stronger. But they're all basically the same. To anybody living under the ground, on the ground in those empires, does it really make a difference? whether it's Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. No, it doesn't. It's the same thing. All of these empires, their common denominator is human autonomy. Man is a law to himself. Man seeking to exalt his throne above the throne of God in heaven, even as we see in in the scriptures the allusion to Lucifer, to Satan doing the same thing. Whether you have, like in the book of Judges, where that autonomy is expressed more individualistic, where it says every man does what is right in his own eyes. So you have autonomy. Wherever you have autonomy, you have tyranny. And so you have tyranny, but it's on a smaller scale. It's down at the individual level, the clan level, and so forth. And then you have the other brand. You have totalitarian tyranny, whereby man must collectivize. You must collectivize man to aggregate power. Any one man or small group of men, there's, there's a limited extent 
to how much the tyranny can express itself, how much uh, oppression and real human suffering it can produce. But when you collectivize, that goes up greatly. That would be like the Tower of Babel. That's the spectrum by which the Bible shows forth the autonomy of man when it comes to rule and authority. In other words, tyranny, because it's perverted authority. It's not under God's authority. And so today, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of smoke and mirrors hiding behind whether whether you hear pundits calling a government fascist or Marxist or communist or whatever they're calling it. Um, Don't use that spectrum. The spectrum we use is the one God gives us. You have autonomy expressed, more individualistic, like in the book of Judges. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. And you have totalitarian autonomy, that kind of tyranny, which you have at the Tower of Babel, where the capacity for human oppression and tyranny goes up much, much greater. God's answer is all authority, all government under him, under the authority of his word, his word which anybody can read and pick up in their hand and examine the authorities which are above them. That is God's answer. So despite all the self-glory and the boasting of these ancient Mediterranean empires, there was a tremendous amount of dehumanization, cruelty, and suffering underneath all the pomp and the power. They all consisted in fallen autonomous man, a law to himself, seeking to exalt himself above the throne of God. So that is the third lesson. The kingdoms of fallen man are all basically the same. The fourth essential lesson is that the kingdom of fallen man are like wild beasts. That's one of the ways in which they're the same. They're all like wild beasts. Now, God makes this point in chapter 7 of Daniel when he takes the same lessons that he showed Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, and he's going to give them to Daniel in a vision. Daniel is going to see those same four ancient Mediterranean empires, but now expressed as four different beasts. But what's the commonality? They're all wild beasts. He's going to see a lion with wings. That's Babylon. And then he's going to see this lion stand up on its hind legs and then stand erect like a man. And he's going to see that lion receive a man's heart. What that is depicting is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. In other words, only by faith in the true and living God does Nebuchadnezzar even become what a man is supposed to be. Only then does he become fully a man because he knows the true and living God in whose image he was made. The second beast is a bear. It's a devouring bear. It's raised up on one side. In other words, one shoulder is bigger and stronger than the other. What that's showing is that the Persians would become stronger than the Medes and they would become the dominant force in that empire. The third beast he sees is a leopard that has four wings. That's the empire of Alexander the Great uh, of Greece. And the the four wings 
uh, indicate the extreme speed by which Alexander conquered the Mediterranean world. And then the final one is not described as any particular animal. It's described more like a, like a, it's just a monster because it has iron teeth and it's trampling everything. And that is Rome. So the kingdoms of fallen man are like wild beasts in that they are powerful. Number two, they are insatiable. They are always hungry. They never have enough. Number three, they can be friendly. They can even be protective, as we sometimes will read of a wild beast being. It will be friendly at a time, inexplicably, or protective for a while. But number four, they are always wild. They can turn on you without warning. They can maul you. They can kill you. We'll see examples of that with Daniel and his friends. Sometimes they're being exalted by Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes they're under the sentence of death. One minute Nebuchadnezzar is exalting Daniel, commanding that the God of Daniel be honored by all. The next minute he's commanding Daniel's friends to be thrown into a fiery furnace because they won't bow down to an idol replicating the giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. The same thing happens in chapter 6 with the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. One minute he is favoring Daniel. The next he is prohibiting prayer to anyone but himself and then throwing Daniel in the lion's den for praying anyway. We see the same thing in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Time and again, with Paul, for example, it's the Romans who are stepping in to protect Paul. And protect other Christians from the real persecuting authorities, the Jewish authorities from Jerusalem. But then in the mid-60s AD, Emperor Nero is going to scapegoat the Christians for the great fire of Rome and start putting them to death in the most hideous fashions. This pattern of intermittent, intermittent peace and then sudden persecution will continue for the better part of the first three centuries of the church. That's the fourth essential lesson. The kingdoms of fallen man are like wild beasts. The fifth essential lesson is that the true is to give us the true nature of pagan gods and pagan worship. The true nature of pagan gods and pagan worship. You see, the pagan gods were essentially like, like watching a soap opera. In other words, they were just like the pagan kings. The pagan gods were capricious, they were greedy, they were petty, and they were cruel. Only worse, because they were more powerful than the pagan kings. You have to remember what Paul tells us about the, uh, the powers that were lurking behind the, the pagan idols of the ancient world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He tells us specifically that they are demonic powers that are behind the faces of those idols. So they're like higher powers, but within the, con- within the cosmos. They are phony in the sense that they are not the one true God. But just because they're phony doesn't mean they're fake. In other words, it doesn't mean that they're nothing. Just because they're not the one true God doesn't mean they're not nothing. 
There is a demonic power that is always lurking behind these pagan idols. And the goal of pagan worship was essentially to bribe these higher malicious powers. And that was always the first goal of any bribery you're presenting by worship is to keep these malicious powers from doing any harm to you or your loved ones. But also, if you bribe them enough, perhaps you could get one on your good side, get one to kind of see your selfish interests as being kind of aligned with them and maybe do you some favors. This is really what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in chapter 3 when he builds this huge idol, which is a replica of the great statue that he saw in his dream. He commands all to bow down to it. He's bribing He's bribing the God he perceives to be behind this idol. And whoever will not bow down to this God will be thrown into the fiery furnace. He's trying, he's perceiving the God of Daniel to be like all the other pagan gods. He's trying to co-opt the God of Daniel to, to see a, 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 a symbiosis between its interests and Nebuchadnezzar's interests. We can work together. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. He's confusing the one true God of Daniel with all the pagan higher powers. But he's going to learn the one true and living God cannot be bribed. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be co-opted, as he will soon learn. That's the fifth essential lesson, the true nature of pagan gods and pagan works. The sixth essential lesson is that God, in the midst of all this turmoil and chaos, which we read about in the book of Daniel, which is business as usual in the kingdoms of fallen man, in the midst of that turmoil and chaos, God is going to bring about his kingdom, and it's not going to be like one more kingdom of the same sort. His kingdom is going to be a game changer. His kingdom is going to change business as usual. Because God's kingdom is not going to operate like man's kingdom. God's kingdom is not going to be a military totalitarian regime imposed on an unwilling world. And that essentially is the view of many of our evangelical brethren still today. That was the view of the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus. What was their view of the kingdom of God? We're going to out-Rome the Romans. We're going to outroam the Romans. We're going to turn it all upside down. And we're going to be on top. Instead of the Romans imposing a military regime on an unwilling world, we will be imposing a military regime on an unwilling world. What God Jesus crucified in large part is that that's not the kingdom he taught. Now when we hear that, we tend to then move into a pietistic direction. We tend to then think, well, Jesus is a kingdom that really doesn't exercise any real rule or authority. Or Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that's restricted to the hearts of believers. It's just inside us. Or maybe it's in the church, but it's not 
out there. It doesn't concern the world or a whole. Or we see it as a waiting into the future till Christ returns. But all of our views when we go in these directions come down to this. Not here, not now. And that's exactly the opposite of what Christ taught and what we see in the book of Daniel. Here and now, but not the same. Because it is a transformational kingdom. So, in contrast to the huge, shining, multi-metal statue representing the kingdoms of fallen man, the kingdom of God is represented by a small, unshaped stone. It comes into the world small. It comes into the world unimpressive. It comes into the world not appearing to pose any sort of threat whatsoever to the great pagan empires of the Mediterranean world. And when it comes into the world where it strikes the kingdom of men, it still doesn't seem to pose any threat. It doesn't strike the great statue of the kingdom of man on the forehead like David did with Goliath, where a small stone could pose a threat. No, it strikes them on the foot not appearing to make any sort of threat whatsoever. But what is different about this stone is that it is alive. And it's going to grow. And everything it touches is going to be changed and transformed. It's going to grow steadily until it becomes a mountain. And then it's going to be a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is the same point. Uh, Josiah was talking to us in the gospel word about the kingdoms like a mustard seed. That's same part of the same point Jesus is making. A mustard seed you can hardly see. The thing is, it's not going to stay that way. It's going to grow to be the biggest plant in the garden. Jesus says the kingdom's like leaven. A pinch of leaven that you put into a huge bread recipe. What can a pinch of leaven do in so big a recipe? We'll just put it in there and watch. The thing that's different about the leaven is it's alive. It's not inert like the other ingredient. It's not going to stay in place. It's not going to stay where you put it. It's going to move everywhere. It's going to touch everything, and everything it touches is going to be transformed. It's going to make all the other ingredients alive. And then it's going to make them rise up. It's going to make that recipe into what it's supposed to be. It's going to glorify it and restore it to God's original intentions. And as it does so, the kingdom of God is going to expose the kingdoms of fallen man to be fool's gold. Appear to be so glorious, all these metals, what a weighty and heavy statue that would be. And remember, in the Hebrew, the word for glory literally means heavy. For something to be glorious is for it to be very heavy, very substantial, very weighty. But all this apparent gold and silver and bronze and iron is going to turn out to have no substance whatsoever. What's the difference between the wheat and the chaff? When you throw them in the wind on the threshing floor, the kernel of wheat has substance, has weight. So it falls to the threshing floor. The chaff has no substance whatsoever. It just blows away. 
So this whole statue of all this weighty metal is going to turn out to be chaff. It's going to blow away in the wind. And that's the sixth essential lesson. In the midst of all this turmoil and chaos, business as usual in the kingdom of the fallen man, God will establish his kingdom, and it's going to be a game changer. The seventh essential lesson that God teaches us here is that his kingdom was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ during his first advent in the first century A.D., in other words, 2,000 years ago. God's dream to Nebuchadnezzar shows the stone striking the statue on the feet, which means that God inaugurates his kingdom during the days of the ancient Roman Empire. Of course, that is exactly when the first advent of Christ occurred. God's night vision to Daniel in chapter 7 is going to confirm the same point. Daniel 7.13, I was watching, says Daniel, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. So Nebuchadnezzar sees an unshaped stone. Daniel sees one like the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. So this is not a coming of the Lord Jesus on the clouds to earth at all. It is a coming on the clouds to heaven, to the Ancient of Days. He's seeing the ascension into heaven of the Lord Jesus. He comes with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus Christ is the stone cut out without hands that strikes the kingdoms of fallen man on the foot. Now what Daniel saw in this vision, as I mentioned, was the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven and being crowned kings of kings at the conclusion of his first advent. You have to remember that Son of Man, which was the name Jesus used for himself, Matthew 16, 13, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, other people had all sorts of things that they said Jesus was, good and bad. But Jesus called himself the Son of Man, Matthew 17, 22. The Son of Man is about to be portrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day, he will be raised up. What Jesus was saying when he called himself Son of Man, that's the question. Well, if you study the Old Testament carefully, you're going to discover one particular book where the phrase Son of Man comes up over and over and over again. And that book is the book of Ezekiel, because Son of Man was God's name for Ezekiel. That's what he called Ezekiel, Son of Man. Now, why is God calling in him? Well, what was unusual about Ezekiel is that he was a priest. He was a Levite. He was a son of Aaron. So he was a priest. He was a contemporary of Daniel, young man at the same time. But he wasn't carried off to Babylon. And he kind of operated like the high priest for God's people in exile. But then in a very rare move, God called Ezekiel, this priest, to become a prophet. Now, normally, God kept the offices separate. 
prophet, priest, king. They were kept separate. But occasionally, very rarely, you will see God combine a couple of those offices with the same person. And that's what he does with Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is a prophet priest. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man. It doesn't say he saw the Son of Man. That would be seeing Ezekiel. He sees one like the Son of Man. He sees one like Ezekiel. He sees a prophet priest come before the Ancient of Days and become King of Kings. That's what he is saying. So every time Jesus called himself the Son of Man, which he did repeatedly in the Gospels, he was saying, I am the one Daniel saw. I am the prophet priest who will come before the Ancient of Days and become King of Kings. We see in Acts chapter 7, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, right before he was stoned, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said what? He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, Daniel 7 vision had already been fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus. The mistake that the modern church makes is that we so often seek to separate Christ's kingship from his priesthood. If you ask uh, most of the modern church, they would tell you that Jesus is priest right now. He's high priest right now. He's completely 100% high priest right now. He achieved that. (coughs) Excuse me. He achieved that during his first advent. And he is high priest 100% right here on the earth right now. Because we all know that if he's not, we're still in our sins. So he's 100% high priest in heaven and on earth right now. Praise God for that. But when it comes to his kingship, we want to go, well, he's king of kings in heaven. He's king of kings in the future when he comes back. He's not king of kings right here, right now. But you see, the Bible won't let us do that. It won't let us separate those two things. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21 Here it's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are, speaking to Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Amen. We all believe that. But when we go back to Psalm 110, that was verse 4. Let's look at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's kingship. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's priesthood. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of your wrath. Back to kingship. They're all blended together. Jesus becomes king at the same time as he becomes high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus 
is priest to the exact same extent that he is king. (coughs) If Jesus is not king here and now, then he is not priest here and now, and we are still in our sins. Hebrews 12, verse 12, This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus isn't sitting in heaven the way a heavyweight boxer sits on his stool in between rounds. He's not sitting up there because he's resting up to come back and finish the job. He's sitting because he is reigning. Remember, the kingdom of God grows gradually until it fills the whole earth. Now, what kingdom conquest looks like at the ground level, because if you look at big picture, you just see this stone growing and filling the whole earth as a mountain. You see a mustard seed becoming the largest plant. You see leaven transforming the recipe. It looks nice and clean and beautiful. But if you look at it in real time at ground level, it looks chaotic. And that's what Daniel's chapter 4 and 5 are showing us. They're showing us the long, torturous conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. I already mentioned God had to take away his sanity for seven years. A long, torturous conversion experience. God dragged Nebuchadnezzar kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But God doesn't try to save. He saves. And that's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Then with Belshazzar, his grandson, who was going to take over the throne, Belshazzar knew the faith of his grandfather. He knew the testimony of his grandfather, but he rejected it. And he mocked the one true God when he had the gold and silver vessels that had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, had them brought out for his big, his, uh, his frat house party that he was having in the palace. And that's when the hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And God brought his judgment very swiftly. You see how patient God was with Nebuchadnezzar on the front end, bringing him out of paganism to faith. But his grandson knows better. He is expected to pick up that faith and carry it forward. And when he rejects it, much more quickly does God act to bring judgment that very night. The empire fell to the Medes and the Persians. This is how the kingdom advances in history. Clean, looking at the big picture level, down to the ground, it's like any battle. Chaotic. And it can seem like at different times as we're in the foxhole that we're taking a lot more lead than we're giving. That's when you have to remember the big picture. Because it is God who carries his kingdom forward. And that brings us to the final essential lesson, which is, what must we do to act in accordance with these seven lessons we've already heard? So I'm going to keep this very simple. Two big picture things that we need to do. Number one, worship the true and living God through Jesus Christ. Worship the true and living God through Jesus Christ. That's what the stone that is cut out without hands is all about. You see, in the Old Testament, God's instructions were, if you build an altar to worship me, then you shall not 
put a tool on any of the stones. You shall not shape them. You shall not put any designs on them. You shall not bring your handiwork at all to this altar. It shall be of unshaped stones. You see that in Exodus 20, verse 25. And so at the heart of the kingdom, whenever in the Old Testament you're reading a passage and you see a reference to an unshaped stone or a stone cut out without hands, immediately think altar, worship. That's what's really being talked about. So at the heart of the kingdom of God is worshiping the one true God through Jesus Christ. Worship at the same time as rejoicing before the Lord. It is also kingdom warfare. I pointed out in the Chronicle this week, God brings this lesson home to us in the famous Battle of Jericho. The Battle of Jericho lasted seven days. Six and a half days were nothing but worship. Six and a half days of nothing but worship, and then a half day of mopping up after God made the walls collapse. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do. And so we worship him, and God rises up and shows his strength. The second thing we must do is trust in the true and living God and bear faithful witness to him. There are many examples of this shown by Daniel and his three friends. Chapter 6, Daniel trusts in God and faithfulness to him even when the lion's den looms before him. And you can see the different facets of Daniel's living testimony. The first facet was just the excellence of his work. His work was flawless. It was excellent. He had a lot of envious civil servants who wanted to take him down. But they examined him. They they flyspecked his entire life and his work. There was nothing that they could work with because all of his work was excellent and it was faithful. So the only thing they could use to attack him was his faith in the true and living God. So they manipulated and tricked the king into making a decree that for 30 days, the only prayer that could be made was to the king himself. Well, that put Daniel's faith in the true and living God squarely uh, on the examination place. And so Daniel then, what does he do? He worships God three times a day, praying to him before an open window. So everybody can see. When it is put this way, Daniel is going to do what God says, and he's going to make a point of it, and he's going to be fearless in it. Now, this convicted the king. The king actually comes to Daniel. He couldn't change the law. That was one of the laws of the Medan person. Once you put it in, you can't change it. So he couldn't undo it. And he knows he's got to throw Daniel in the lion's den. But he comes to Daniel and he says, the God whom you worship will deliver you. You see God beginning to work faith there in the king. And indeed, God does deliver Daniel. You see the same thing in chapter 3 with Daniel's three friends because they won't bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar has made even when they're faced with death in the fiery furnace. They testified to the king that their God was able to deliver them. Now notice they didn't say our God is going to deliver us. They didn't know that. But it didn't matter. He was the true and living God 
They were going to be faithful to him. They would not worship an idol. And whether God delivered them or not, praise be to God. That was their attitude. And God did deliver them. And this same kind of courage and faith and worship, we are to serve God today. And through this, God rises up to advance his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.